Hello, ASPN listeners. Uh, this is Peter Ravella, publisher of Coastal News Today and ASPN. And you're in for a treat today, a special rebroadcast of the Next Gen Waterfronts podcast hosted by Dan Martin, who passed away in December of 2020. We will be rerunning four of Dan's shows this month in honor of his uh, life and his contribution to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, this is uh, Dan Martin with Next Generation Waterfronts. I have a special guest today, someone I've uh, known off and on for many years, Mary Ludgen from Heitman. Heitman is our only name. Is your only name, so it's just Heitman. And, uh, and, and Mary has done some really interesting research and has kept up on on coastal development uh, from a very different perspective, uh, from long-term risk and uh, assessing uh, how we should look into that. And there have been some other good reports on that lately too. But I wanted to talk to Mary about her report. So Mary, can you take a second maybe and introduce yourself? Thanks, Dan. Uh, I am the Director of Global Investment Research for a real estate investment company called Heitman. We're based in Chicago. We advise on $44 billion worth of real estate. We own it directly on behalf of clients. We invest in real estate stocks, re- stocks, and we make loans on real estate properties in both the U.S. as, of, as well as other parts of North America. We've been investing in Europe since 1996, and uh, we've been investing in Asia over the last decade. Is, is there is there some what what actually got your interest into what piqued your interest in in coastal uh, and how would you describe it I, I described it as coastal value and risk is that yeah how would you describe what what your newfound interest is and it may not be newfound it's not so newfound uh, I called myself the queen of green for a long time so I got to the question of climate related risk from an interest in sustainability and lots of institutional investors, and that's the kind of money that I represent. So pension plans, sovereign wealth funds, college endowments and foundations, a lot of them get to risk by having started at the building level, recognizing buildings are the source of something like two thirds of all our carbon emissions uh, globally. Uh, the, The way my clients have been operating, it began with focusing on how to make their buildings greener or more sustainable. And from there, they got focused, uh, as did I, on making buildings resilient against some sort of weather event. And from there, naturally, we went into the realm of trying to identify the risk that each asset represents. We have an interest in coastal locations, but we're also trying to understand and underwrite the risk associated with wildfires, with flooding of all sorts, not simply seacoast and storm surge, but fluvial or river-related flooding. We're interested in heat level rise and how that might affect where people choose to live and work. Going forward, water availability, you and I are looking out at the sixth largest body of fresh water in the world in the form of Lake Michigan. And uh, so my interest in coastal areas is a component of this broader focus on what's the environmental risk we are taking on when we buy a piece of property or we make a loan on a piece of property or we buy the stock of a real estate investment trust. And, and, in, in a, and with your interest, um, kind of walk through how that does impact your decision on, on buying or leasing or, or however you uh, 
uh, you gain control over property. How does how, how do when you assess different choices, do you then compare their risks or? Yes, we, we do. And what what we are able to do is evolving quickly as we've gone from an era onto almost antediluvian era of FEMA maps, where our best source of environmental risk was knowing whether something was in a flood zone or not. Dan, you grimaced as, as I said those fateful words, FEMA maps, because what you and I both know is they're not completely dependable. They may not be up to date. They're to some extent uh, political creatures. And uh, so all we were able to do as recently as three or four years ago was to look at whether something was in a flood zone or how it was rated by insurance companies. What we've learned is insurance has a pretty short view on something because their policies are typically 365 days in duration. So they can either cancel outright or up your premium meaningfully. By contrast, when we buy a piece of property, the shortest hold period we're thinking about is three years, possibly five years, but more likely we're buying a property for a 10-year hold and we're expecting to sell it to somebody that would have a similar viewpoint. So in, in coastal terms, where a lot of the world's most high quality, most institutional quality real estate is located, 20 years is a lifetime given the pace of change. And, and, and you and I uh, earlier in a conversation had talked about how um, in an earlier conversation I had had uh, on this network, we had talked about uh, with another fellow about how uh, people weren't so concerned about 30-year mortgages in Florida because the average hold was only about five years. So your hold is actually twice that, uh, it typically. is. That or certainly our perspective is twice that for our own hold. And we know that we're trying to sell institutional quality stuff to somebody that likely is planning to hold it for 10 years. And, and when you when you when you purchase something, do you already have somebody uh, in mind who's going to uh, help support that purchase, or or are you actually buying for portfolios for individual groups? We have certain clients that are large enough that they can buy a piece of property outright, and they have enough capital to invest in real estate. If you're Calpers or Calsters, and you have a hundred and twenty-five billion dollar portfolio, twelve percent of which is allocated to real estate. You have the wherewithal to be able to put together a globally diversified portfolio of buildings you own outright. But we also invest through funds where our investors are smaller and they can't afford to build a portfolio that's diverse one off, um, they, but they are willing to buy an existing portfolio in the form of our fund. Are you finding some of the groups that, uh, that you're uh, working for? Are, are they more cognizant of the risks than others, or are they looking for some sort of a certification that says, hey, this is you know, climatologically more secure than other places, or we don't want to, conversely, we don't want to go some to you know, take on risk in other places? How do they feel about, about what your, this body of knowledge that you're, you've been developing? So I'll give you the classic answer, which is it depends. <laughs> Broadly speaking, uh, we have clients that want to make certain we have an investment process in which we're underwriting all of the relevant risks as well as all of the relevant opportunities. So their expectation is that we would be looking at the right risks. I think the reality is that as an industry, 
we've been largely ignoring climate risk until we couldn't ignore it any longer. And for some, the epiphany came in the form of the California wildfires last summer and the horrific loss of life and wherewithal and uh, and and uh, changed notions of what is appropriate ingress and egress look like into a community. So there have been events, hurricanes, Hugo and Maria and others have helped demonstrate the vulnerability of entire swaths of, of, of the world. So we're seeing growing awareness. Uh, to conclude, uh, our clients are not usually asking us to redline an area. They're asking us to bring judgment to what kinds of risks make sense where is the risk of climate change priced in and where has it not been and, and how should we be pricing it? If, if you back it up before climate became a risk category that you began to evaluate properties with, what were some of the key other areas that you would evaluate risk in? Sure. And have any of those changed? Uh, so let's look at things like obsolescence. Uh, we've been expected to be able to forecast how office tenants are going to behave, where are they going to want to locate, uh, what kind of buildings will they want to live with, what kind of transportation will they want to use in order to get to a particular office building. The industry hasn't always done a great job in that, right? You have a lot of money invested in suburban office parks that are single purpose, and increasingly that's not where millennials want to work. But that's an example of we're trying to avoid areas or property types that have an obsolescence risk. So you're really looking to some extent at behavioral issues. And I wonder if, if do you think the population has caught up with the behavioral changes that will happen in their lives as a result of climate change? It's starting to. I, I do believe these gigantic, monstrous storms uh, are uh, a key to changing people's notions, although Florida is still a net gainer in population. Your point earlier about people are only living there for, on average, five years is a valid one. You have people moving in who then may choose to move out within five years, either because of the heat or the experience of, of of going through severe storms or the run-up to severe storms, aftermath of severe storms. Um, but we are trying to predict how people that rent properties are going to behave. And those include apartment renters, they include industrial renters, they include retail tenants, they include office tenants. We invest across eight basic property types. It also includes storage senior housing, student housing, and uh, medical office. So I think your original question was, are they catching on to these gigantic right. climate changes? I think some of them are. We have some statistics that a Zillow study has shown an impact of home prices in locations exposed to hurricane have been reacting. Home prices are down in areas immediately adjacent to places hit by hurricanes. Uh, similarly, the Institutional Real Estate Index, the National Council of Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries Index, it shows that within a 12-month period of a major storm, values are down something like 6.5%, and over a two-year term, they're down 10%. So do the, do you, and, and I guess the question is going to be, um, you know, there is a certain random nature to the way weather happens now. Yeah. And so 
do we then begin to say, well, something hit this area, so that there was a value decline, and in year two, there's still a value decline. After a couple of years, do we have the memory, or do things start to, I wonder, return to the previous values? I think in many instances they have returned to previous values. The impact of Superstorm Sandy, it didn't diminish the population of New York City. Although Good by point. contrast, New Orleans, my recollection of the statistic is that New Orleans is still only 82% of its pre-Katrina population. So there's an instance where people voted with their feet. Why one is different than the other is a question a lot of us could try to answer. I do know that my colleagues, many of whom have built investment strategies around investing in the great cities of the globe, most of which are coastal, not all by any means, many of them are operating under the premise that those places will be defended. What we don't think they've necessarily incorporated is kind of property tax increase? Does that mean at either the municipal or the state level? Uh, what kind of insurance costs will they need to bear in order to be able to operate there? Yeah, I, I know Boston, for example, has a pretty aggressive plan for what it's going to do with its coastline um, to uh, to defend itself. And actually, that's a great term of phrase, defending itself from, from the weather doing so intelligently and, and with with, uh, with an effort to mitigate risk against its population, its property, essentially. Yes. Um, but not all cities have done so. Uh, and, and I wonder if that becomes a matter where where cities at some point get rated or states get rated. I wonder yes. on what level. And, and your point about the property taxes, essentially, or other kinds of taxes, it's if they're going to pay for this, you know, do, I guess, Boston real estate will, in theory, get more expensive because you're taxing the property owners in the cities for defending them, does that, does that, is that going to be different than say if Jacksonville doesn't have a, a strategy and they don't have the higher taxes, but if you're only going to hold for a few years, is, is that a more reasonable risk to buy in Jacksonville because you don't have the out-of-pocket cost as a owner? Yeah, fair question. Uh, what we're looking at is uh, big data has come to this realm. So I will reference a, a vendor of ours called 427. That name is written out as in F-O-U-R, et cetera. And what they've been able to do is to look at actual incidences of five different types of, of, of risk, earthquake, wildfire, storm surge, sea level rise broadly, and wind, I believe. And then they've also layered on heat stress and uh, water access. And they can take you down to a specific geographical point. It's geocoded. And they can let you look at what the historical incidence has been of any of those factors that I mentioned earlier. And then they have climate maps in which they're forecasting what's likely going to be happening at that location. We can score individual properties on those risk dimensions, and then we can aggregate up to a portfolio. What does a particular client have exposure to? And that can help us decide how much more earthquake exposure would we want in this portfolio. Recognizing that the likelihood that an earthquake would hit all of their earthquake zone properties is minimal, but just how much risk do you want to be taking? Well, that's, that's actually kind of an interesting approach. It's a kind of a pick your poison because one of those things will probably impact every square inch of, of the continental U.S. 
uh, at yeah. some point in the near term. So, you know, is, is it a matter of saying, well, is there an overall risk factor or or do we want to just stay away from things with these three kinds of risks because we think those are uncontrollable? Exactly. And we are in the middle of, of uh, trying to figure that out right now. This tool has been in our possession for a little bit less than 12 months now. And uh, so we are still trying to figure out what exactly to do with it. We've been able to code our entire global portfolio and see what uh, claims that are invested on three or four continents have as exposure. And we can make some decisions about, hey, let's not add more storm surge risk because storm surges tend to hit a wide swath of properties. So your odds of dodging them, if there's an incident in a metro area, you're likely, you're at risk. So it's a, the difference between a storm surge and a tornado. Exactly. Uh, you know, a tornado is going to hit a bunch of properties on its path. Storm surge will hit a broader, uh, well, like Fukushima, it'll just come right in and wipe something out off the map. Exactly right. So that's our early thinking about this, recognizing it's pretty rudimentary, but uh, it's it's extremely important. I, I have a stat in my brain from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency about the number of billion-dollar insurance incidents since 1980, something like 250 since then, an average of six per year. That's doubled over the past five years. You, Dan, as a consultant, could say, well, maybe we need to adjust those 80s ones to current dollars, right? Yeah. Maybe there'd be more, but nonetheless, there, the incidence is rising. And uh, so with that rise in incidence, our clients are seeing daily announcements, whether it was yesterday's announcement of the 200 reindeer deaths in somewhere in the northern Scandinavia as just one evidence of climate change. It's in papers daily now in a way that it wasn't even five years ago. So this is this is really interesting just in terms of our ability to, to gain data and control it because it used the term big data a few minutes ago. And really what you're saying is, or not really what you're saying because you already said it, uh, is, 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 is that, uh, is, is that we're, we're, we're discovering that we need to know a lot more about certain kinds of risks associated uh, with climate change at a time when we have the ability to handle big data or to collect and, yes. and, and aggregate it. But the next problem is figuring out what it means or how to use it. And, yes. and there may be other vendors or other groups that are collecting data um, that, uh, uh, that, that we're going to have to figure out how to integrate data from different sources that carry different kinds of risk uh, and, and just like, you know, weather system maps, whose algorithms do we think are the better ones? Correct. Because you got to troubleshoot the analysis as well as the data. You are absolutely right. And then I would suggest that the, the data I mentioned earlier that's at the point estimate, uh, geographical, geocoded information, what it doesn't include is what is the municipality doing to mitigate the risk? or what's been done at the property level to mitigate the risk. So the paper that we wrote that, that your colleagues saw, uh, it, it was about uh, the geographical risk. Our next paper, which we're doing with the Urban Land Institute that we hope to be done with by the end of this year, relates to trying to size the municipal action or reaction to things, Miami, for example has levied a $400 million bond that 
was to be applied to doing things to their infrastructure to deal with both storm-related flooding and sunny day flooding, which is an increasing incident across much of the East Coast. Well, I, I live in, I live in a, a neighborhood that is the highest point in the city of Chicago. And, uh, and when we were leaving for a trip recently, uh, I opened the back of the car. Uh, I, I'm a proud owner of a minivan. And, uh, and the, I pushed the, the back gate of it, it opened, and, and the luggage spilled out onto the street, which, which was a problem. But it was more of a problem because we had had some torrential rains that had flooded my street and were eh, maybe a quarter of the way up the lawn. And, and that, was, that was a real lesson for me in that it didn't matter that I live in a neighborhood that's the highest point in Chicago. It was all about the storm sewage clearance capacity yeah. and it wasn't and it wasn't there so there's a lot of things that sometimes an assumption might be that my neighborhood's safe from flooding sure. but because you can't evacuate the water uh fast enough um it turns out it's not so there's really a lot of variables oh, yeah. involved in, in 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 ascertaining risk like this now if i have if i if i if i say this uh, as i say this i'm saying my insurance company if you're listening Really, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. But could we go back for a moment sure. to your your um, your uh, community of birth, Boston? Oh yeah. Boston is one of the darlings of the global real estate investment world. If you're an institutional investor, you're uh, you you own property in New York, you own property in Boston, you own property in San Francisco. Uh, Coastal locations have, have economic dominance for all sorts of reasons over non-coastal ones, largely related to historical patterns. But in your own hometown, right, the Beck Bay? Oh, yeah. Well, it turns out it was a bay. Yes. So I'm trying to get filled. It's all fill. It's <laughs> landfill. Dan yeah. and I are looking out the window occasionally at the portion of Chicago that's landfill, which yes. is Millennium Park and, and Grant Park. And so sometimes it's about what you see may not be what's really there. So Back Bay, Boston, which is filled with beautiful parks like Copley Square and the, and the Boston Common, as well as grand uh, shopping palaces along Newbury Street and great hotels and lots of office buildings. It looks solid, but its underpinning is not. Yeah, it's, it's back in the days when, we, when wetlands were called swamps. Uh, yes. and, and and that was that was the back swamp of Boston. Actually, to to go to Boston or stay with Boston for a second, Boston only the actual above water portion of Boston is a very small part of Boston. Some forty or sixty percent of Boston is actually built on fill, which is is a really interesting risk for uh, the part of Boston I grew up in. South Boston yes. uh, was was largely made of fill too, uh, and uh, and and you know I, I imagine. That becomes a question, too, because do you look at a piece of land for what it was um, or do you look at a piece of land for what its current risks might be based on how other land relates to it, too? That's an element as well, especially in earthquake zones, which are uh, not just coastal there. Uh, we have the New Madrid Fault in the Midwest. Goes right through, yeah, Midwest. Yeah. Right. Um, but there, building codes... Uh, apply and so the newer buildings and new could be 30 years they are largely built to the best that we know of earthquake protection 
But if somebody next door to you hasn't been retrofitted, and I'm not completely aware of the regulatory environment for this, but it could be that damage is done to your building, not because of where the fault line is, but how your neighbor reacts. Well, it's, it's almost like vaccines. You know, if there's somebody out there who has measles, they're going to infect the rest of the population. So it's not only whether your building has been upgraded to current standards, it's what about the buildings around you? Because uh, the danger that those buildings pose to your building might be uh, an actually an issue. Precisely. So it's got to be consistently applied. And and actually, that's really an interesting point vis-a-vis, you know, San Francisco and California. I'm sure that there are so many buildings and so many critical parts there. Their investment-grade properties have been built to, to the newer standards, whereas buildings in the new Madrid Fault, which underlies, you know, a quarter through the Midwest, um, Nobody even knows they're on the new yes. Madrid fault, let alone, you know, have made any accommodation for, you know, making them safer in, in the case of, a, of, of an earthquake. Exactly. They haven't had reason to fear that. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So in, in a global sense, the idea of risk management is really is really changing a lot because it used to be that we used to think about risk management for acquiring or maintaining whatever properties it was limited to a few factors. Now we're finding more and more factors yes. and in one sort of way, an infinite number of factors. So with each layer were yeah. factors that were now layering onto what was the risk we understood. And now we have new risks and we can monitor them or at least measure them and then hopefully monitor them. Uh, then it becomes a question of, you know, how how complex of a, of, of a set of assumptions does it become for buying and selling properties? And can it affect people? Well, let me let me say this. I was having a conversation this morning about our climate risk report with somebody that is deeply involved in the world of non-U.S. investors who are looking at investing in the U.S. These are sophisticated types that are constantly assessing the relative value of London in an era of Brexit versus Hong Kong in an era of uh, Chinese crackdown and um, onerous laws being put in place. So these are sophisticated people that are used to making both strategic and tactical decisions about we're going to overweight this and we're going to underweight that. Uh, their sentiment on a location could change quickly. And I'll just point to New York City, which I think is ironically doing a lot of really smart things uh, in both New York City and New York State are trying to recognize their, their exposure, particularly to coastal dynamics, uh, where New York City, the, 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 the southern tip of Manhattan, is abutted by an ocean as well as a couple of rivers. 
um, and is subject to flooding, subject to storms like Superstorm Sandy, whatever you wanted to call it. Um, and uh, so they're putting in place regulation that's meant to reduce the carbon footprint of uh, both the city and the state pretty dramatically. So they want to get to pre-1990 levels mm. with by 2040. Uh, and the regulatory power is such that the plan is to slap building owners with uh, fines if they're not in compliance and reducing their emissions. And there's another standard for execution by 2050. Has that been priced in, those building retrofits that are going to be necessary? Has that been priced into the uh, overall cost of uh, a square foot of land in uh, of, uh, of, uh, office space in New York City? Probably not. So let me sum that up by saying what we're trying to figure out is what could change either from a who wants to live and work here perspective, how much are they willing to tolerate, uh, what about consumer or investor sentiment, what could trip a wire that would cause an investor to say, we are redlining this particular area, we're just not going to take that kind of risk. And that could happen quickly. Sentiment can change overnight. It, it, it almost, it almost, you know, it, you know. I was going to say something to the effect of, it's almost like you have uh, their haves and have nots, and, and the haves and have nots are those that have the data and the analysis and know how to invest based on it, and the have nots who are still, you know, may believe that they're informed, but are essentially relative to the first group shooting from the hip because they're essentially making their gut. And, and I'm not sure either one is right because any given marketplace is not as smart as the first group. And the second group may actually be better in touch with the short-term values. So how things are buying and selling. And in an odd sort of way, if you're only buying and selling for five years or, or some increment less than, for example, what you guys are, are looking at, the horizon that you're looking at, um, it's almost like there's we almost have a futures market that might evolve in property values uh, in, 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 in a broader sense. And, uh, and, and you know, can our can our knowledge keep up with the kinds of risks that we identify and choose to quantify and monitor or or I mean, is it we believe we know more. But what about that one thing we hadn't figured out? Yeah. You're raising a fair question. One of the um, methodologies. It's a very nihilist argument. I'm sorry. <laughs> on, on, a, on a Friday afternoon, yeah. uh, uh, on a sunny day on a Friday afternoon, uh, one of the uh, elements of how we did our climate study was an interview with other institutional investors to try to figure out how they're responding to climate risk. And when I presented this, the findings to uh, the group ULI that um, we coordinated with in writing this piece, uh, many of the investors in the room said, hey, this is, this is we think it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen during my three-year hold or my five-year hold. Well, they're making an implicit bet that it's not going to occur during that period. But and if you keep betting. But the probability is, is the same in year one as it is in year 10 for many of these risks. I think it is. Yeah. I do. I do. So they're taking a risk even though they they're believe it won't happen. Correct. Correct. Or they're implicitly assuming that somebody that there will be defense of the locations in which they're investing and that their cost structure, the investor's cost structure, will not be changed by that. I think just to point out one of the population dynamics uh, that anyone in the U.S. Uh, that, that looks at 
um, who moves where and why is observing is a migration from higher tax states to lower tax states, particularly as baby boom members are looking at retirement options. Well, some of the lower tax environments are among the most exposed to climate risk. And so it could be that what the Illinois couple thinks they're getting when they move to the hill country of Texas may be quite different than what they actually get. Might be hotter and might be more expensive. And with that, certainly we've already seen the halfbacks from Florida, people that, that were driven out by the heat and, and moved to Asheville, North Carolina. Or the Piedmont region of Tennessee or something like that. Correct. So there could be lots of halfbacks and uh, Texas has eaten the Northeast's lunch for many decades in offering a, a more business-friendly environment. Um, but it could be that they simply have to change how they pay for their infrastructure. Well, you know, one, one observation I make based on what you, the comments you just made would be that um, you're sharing your data with, with the ULI and other investors through that mechanism is, is really laudable because I think you know, for people who care a lot about this kind of risk uh, understanding, such as you, it only benefits you even if everybody thinks about it too. Yes. Because because you want to be sure that the that these value issues are baked into real estate that you're thinking of investing in, so that it isn't a case of where you're not willing to pay for something because risks you understand, uh, but you don't want somebody else to to not understand those risks risk because you want them to understand that this is not a cheap piece of property or an expensive piece of property. I guess what I'm thinking is, 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 is for real, for true, you know, information to be a value, it's got to be widely understood in the marketplace. And, and that's going to be interesting because everybody still doesn't quite agree on the importance of the information. I think that's completely fair. At the same time, I do think in real estate, there's often been a feeling that, um, you, you might possess data that somebody else doesn't have, and that gives you an advantage in the marketplace. The opposite seems to be what's playing out right now, where when I propose this to long-term investors, some of them have said, if we underwrite taxes to quadruple, or we underwrite insurance costs to quadruple, we won't be able to succeed in buying a piece of property because the market isn't underwriting that. So maybe your earlier point was what we need is a shared notion that these indeed are risks that need to be priced in. What I would tell you is it doesn't appear as though that's how certain types of real estate is being looked at now to get to the topic of your podcast, the coastal one. It's the, it's the world's richest real estate. Just use the U S coastal real estate. Uh, it's priced on the lowest going in yields, highest price per square foot relative to non-coastal locations. Here I'm talking about commercial properties, industrial properties, apartment properties, not single family homes. So it certainly hasn't flowed through yet, but we think that could change over the next 10 years. So, so actually uh, talk about that change. You know, How is it that you think more of these risk factors will get baked into the value of properties over time is is there is you know is it is it just an institutional is this a kind of a top-down thing that's going to happen and, and and you're right to exclude um single-family homes because that's a totally different marketplace sure but in, and this also comes to the idea of uh, of, of a 
category that's near and dear to me, which is leisure real estate, you know, our resorts and, and, you know, all the assets that are along everything from water parks to zoos to aquariums and all the other fun stuff, you know, how will, how will that, uh, well, some of that is not actually investment grade. So that would be in the other category. Yes. Well, I'll tell you, um, one of my dear friends in the industry, the real estate research industry owned a piece of property in St. John. Uh, it was a condo, and, and it was pummeled by uh, some hurricane along the way. And he extracted from that, always rent, never own. So we, I don't think it's necessarily going to affect the demand to go to a place adjacent to the coast. People love water. It's we do. primordial. We do. Yeah. Uh, our desire for it. Um, I, I think we're trying to go back to the womb. We crawled out of the primordial ooze, and I guess in some way we want to go back. Something like it. Yeah. Both you and I own homes away from uh, Lake Michigan right. on the premise that we can uh, we can enjoy it, but we don't have to live near it. Uh, but other people feel the need to live near it, and you can see the people that have rebuilt their homes four and five times. There's something going on about it. What? Well, one thing that's going on is is that they're being paid when it's destroyed in the first place. It is. So how, how does how does insurance figure into this? Because yes. one would think that the people that would care most about insurance, despite the fact that it's a one year renewal horizon, uh, how how can insurance companies be be brought to recognize the risks that are involved? Just like 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 you are from an investor point of view. In in fact, that's sort of that's sort of a question of you know all these different horizons of concern. Uh, you know, whether it's the five-year horizon that a mortgage company has in Florida, whether it's the one year for the insurance or whether it's 10 years for you, I guess there really aren't, you don't get to people who care much more than 10 years. Is that? Well, uh, this is not a realm I know particularly well, but I can, I can make a couple of points. You've got a federal government backstop mm -hmm. and uh, the program that, that, um, helps people buy out of homes that are in flood zones. I think there's an extremely long waiting list for that. So you have people that are in homes they may wish to be out of, but their equity is sunk into them and they haven't been able to get out. And then another storm could hit and they, they find themselves able to access dollars that allow them to rebuild, but not to exit. And that seems to be a bit of a catch 22. So a broad policy change for populations like that, uh, with a would, would possibly have a sweeping implication for the market if things changed and people were able to exit, yes. who choose to or want to exit, um, then uh, then that might be a signal to real estate around them. Correct. That, so so to some point, you know, the question is when do markets influence one another, yes. even though they're they're separate and they're, and, and what drives the markets are different factors. Um, that's a really interesting observation that, that if the federal government, which can have make sweeping changes and stuff like that, were they to do that, that would be, and, and would that, that I suppose would be good not only for those people, but it would be good for, um, people in general wanting to better understand climate, uh, factors, you know, and begin to, if that's happening there, what does that mean for me here? Yes. I think uh, from the from the U.S. perspective, there are swaths of the U.S. that are experiencing uh, the climate migration, climate refugee status. Uh, the New York Times piece just the other day on the extreme flooding in in a swath of Mississippi, uh, where just days ago, and we're in August now, just days ago, 
Uh, they passed the flood stage for the first time since the floods occurred in, in March or April. Uh, never experienced it before. So I think things are dawning on people that what they thought they knew about seasonal weather patterns may not be indicative of what the future is. Yeah, and you know, the, the idea of, of human knowledge um, being something that we act on when sometimes human knowledge is so transitory that, you know, it's a lifetime uh, or less than a lifetime and the decision makers aren't necessarily at the older end of the spectrum. So younger people will be making choices not based on very much. I, I think, um, I, I think uh, you know, there really is kind of an interesting problem now where a lot of people uh, will uh, go up and down saying that they can't stand uh, climate change or don't believe it just says they may not uh, like uh, Obamacare. Uh, but it turns around and they like something called the ACA uh, and they care about pre-existing conditions. But but darn that Obamacare, what a mistake that is. And, you know, what a ripoff that is. So, you know, I think this we may be entering an age of doublethink or new or our new vocabulary to describe situations that allows people that allow people to to jettison their old vocabulary, describing the same situation. Uh, uh, and accepting a more common vocabulary that we all now will share. Uh, so, I mean, just words matter, and, and it'll be interesting to see how uh, how we change uh, how we change talking about this. Because you're describing a lot of states that are red states, and uh, and traditionally they've been states that have not cared about climate change. For sure. And I, when I'm speaking with disparate audiences, I, I often try to say, whatever the cause, the incidences of extreme weather appear to be rising. And uh, that's, that's my way of making certain that the audience won't tune me off and shout, it's just weather, it's not climate change. Uh, but it doesn't- Have you had people shout that, you know, or, or bring that up, say, oh, it's just weather, it's, it's not, not here to stay. Five years ago, a, a dear friend uh, whose politics I do not share uh, said, uh, his, uh, his own former farmer is from a farming community. He, he said, it's just weather. But I'm not hearing that today other than from the White House. So there, so there kind of is a, a public, um, I guess, reckoning that's going on. Reckoning is too strong of a word. There's a public change in, in a sea change, if I get to use that. Uh, uh, there's a sea change in the way people think about, uh, about what's going on, about the reality of the world of balance. And now the question is, is will they accept the kinds of analyses that you've been doing and that these other groups have been doing? Yes. Because I know 15, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, when I started looking at demographic data, we used to have to look up uh, census books. Now I just hit a few keys and Esri tells me how many people and what their characteristics are in a certain area. So you would foresee a future where people would look at a site and consider it just as we can now consider Esri uh, in, in just a short period of time and say, oh, the risks are yes. A, B, C, D for the five, or E for the five areas that you mentioned earlier. Yes, and where people will start to doubt that their eye alone gives them insight. I'll use an example there. We own uh, a residential community near to Franklin Wright's Taliesin in Scottsdale, part of suburban Phoenix. Uh, it's uh, adjacent to uh, a set of mountains, 
Um, and but it's not particularly flat. It's not low lying. It's but it's it turns out it's downstream from what becomes a stream during the monsoon season of August or whenever there's a lot of rainfall and there is some level of rainfall in Phoenix. So we saw its profile from a climate risk perspective and it scored highly on flooding and dismissed it initially and said this must be just a mistake. Turns out that in the in the areas of rain, rapid uh, runoff of water occurs adjacent to the property. The property turns out to have been built to accommodate that. The electrical systems are above the ground floor and other things that you do as part of hardening a building. So somebody acknowledged this earlier on. We didn't have to underwrite making building changes as part of an investment in, in the building. But it alerted us to something that our naked eye wouldn't have Picked up on. Picked up on. And, and, and I guess, you know, just looking at, at this new tool that you have for assessing properties, or at least beginning to assess properties for purchase, I, I would guess you're going to use the rearview mirror, too, and look back at properties you have purchased and yes. say, hey, did we pick up something with a risk that we didn't see yes. that was to, to our naked eye, but now we need to think about um, whether we want to keep it yes. or whether we want to... Uh, to, to send it back to the marketplace and we want to be able to send it back to the marketplace and at, at, at a good return so we're not necessarily gonna you know talk about it it's, it's like when you buy a house uh, in a lot of jurisdictions you have to sign off and say nope there's no lead paint here uh, or, or or something like that but but until until the marketplace begins to obligate in the transaction of properties that you admit or that you are upfront about, but uh, shortcomings to the property that uh, you know, I, I guess we, we won't really see the full valuation of, of that. And that's that's different marketplace, of course, you know, with residential versus institutional grade um, single family houses. Yes, we're not being asked to disclose at this point. At some point that will come. And the New York City regulatory environment is an example of instances where disclosure about true energy costs, huh? that's now mandated. Uh, and so that allows a prospective tenant or a prospective owner to line their building up with uh, competitor buildings and identify, is this a building that's effectively obsolete from an energy perspective? And the next owner would need to retrofit to change out the chillers or whatever, put in solar panels, tighten up the windows. Well, we, we, did, we did that with cars, though, you know, where we used to run on leaded gas. Now there isn't a car in America that can't run on, on, on leaded. Yeah. Uh, and so we've, we've made those kinds of changes in the past. So it's just a question. Did you price that in? Hmm. That, that expense of conversion or the fact that nobody wanted to buy a gas that could only, a car that could only take leaded gas any longer. Did somebody price that in or is that an unexpected an unpleasant surprise. Well, to, to, to some extent, and, and, and this is within my memory, so I should know this, but, but I suspect what happened was, you know, uh, the average age of a car is probably something under 10 years. Yeah. So they basically said to the auto industry, you know, over this 10 year, we'll say time horizon, all of your new vehicles must be that. And, uh, and, and because gas stations won't be selling leaded gas, uh, or very rarely will they, uh, then people who have those vehicles will sort of will, will will gradually retire those vehicles, uh, and yeah, they may so be changed. You no, can't do that with a building. No resale value yeah. would be the no key words, value. right? And nobody that owns real estate would want to hear the words "no resale value." But that is an extreme scenario. If there's a, a less 
populated part of a coast and there's not enough tax base to be able to pay the cost of defending it. And the federal government doesn't create a mechanism whereby those undefended locations, the places a state wouldn't want to defend, have a backstop in the federal government. Then there, there could be instances where there is no value. Well, I remember writing an article about five years ago about autonomous vehicles and basically saying that's going to really drive a lot of change in the way our cities are laid up. And, and, yeah, good resist. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, things like uh, uh, if you're in an autonomous vehicle, you're not looking out the window. So, therefore, uh, you know, retail properties that have been priced, uh, you know, with the assumption that, that, that you're going to see them. Sure, uh, drive-by. That drive-by or, you know, frontage uh, yeah. won't matter anymore. I think at the end of the article I said that cities will be an archipelago of, of pedestrian zones uh, where people will just move from one to another to another, and the land between those will, will be of diminished value uh, over time. Is, 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 do, you, do you see that? kind of thing happen on a national level or some parts of the country in 50 years yes. you know, we all talk about 2050 because so many things will happen you know apparently by 2050 <laughs> uh the scientists apparently have told us that uh that is, is we're going to see the shape of american american cities change on on that level and on a national level yeah you could expect that um whenever i'm interviewed on this topic uh one of the, the constant questions is who are the losers in climate risk climate related climate change related risk and who are the winners and uh one's ability to forecast uh varies in accuracy that's uh, that's for sure. But you can think things. I'm looking at the sixth largest body of freshwater in the world as we speak. You can anticipate that access to freshwater is going to be more and more relevant in an environment in which we seem to be getting hotter from a climate perspective. Uh, there are whole parts of the globe that it's not tolerable, tolerable to be outside at noon. And that's causing people to migrate to places where it's it's possible to, to, to live. Uh, air conditioning has certainly broadened the band of, of where it's tolerable to live, but you still want to be able to walk around outside, even in air-conditioned places. I'll just give you an aside. I was in Hawaii. Uh, I have a client that's based there, so I have the pleasure of going to Hawaii on business. It was January. I was headed back to the airport. The cab driver asked me where I was going back to, and I said, I'm going back to Chicago. January. Chicago's not at its best in January. And my cab driver said to me, I am so jealous. I paused and asked why a man (laughs) from paradise, I love Chicago, but why would a man from paradise be asking me, telling me how jealous he is of my return to Chicago, particularly in January? And his answer was, at least in Chicago, you can put on enough clothing to prepare for a day. But he said in Hawaii, you can't at certain moments take off enough clothing to be comfortable, which is an interesting perspective. Well, that, that's that's a uh, that's that's interesting because you know a Nordic expression uh, for uh, uh, Norway and Sweden and Iceland, I'm told, is 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 um, is is that it's never too cold or too hot. You don't have bad weather; you have bad clothes. That it's all yes, about the clothes. Yes. It's not about. That. Um, I, I, I definitely appreciate you stopping by for this conversation, Mary. And once again, I should have said this halfway through or several times even. Uh, uh, this is Dan Martin. I've had the pleasure of talking with Mary Ludgen from Heitman. Heitman. And uh, here in Chicago. 
and uh, and and uh, Mary, if uh, there's anyone uh, within uh, within our our reach that uh, would want to reach you, they would just reach you through Heitman, or they can. Mary Ludkin at Heitman.org. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Let's oh. try that again. Mary Ludkin at Heitman.com. Heitman.com. Uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, and it's been uh, it's been great uh, talking with you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Mm-hmm.